Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Please stand by. We now take you live to the Institute of Rational Thought for a special broadcast. Hard-hitting interviews and relevant information to make your day. It's Chad Adams. Yes, that's me. Don't be fooled. My good buddy Pete Counter's back here Monday. That's the uh, is actually the producer's idea to put that in there. It's uh, from several years ago, and uh, appreciate them doing that for fun. I am your guest host, and it is News Talk 1110-993 WBT. If you would like to get in on the conversation, it's 704-570-1110, 570-1110. And... Having said that, I, I think we have a we have a good friend uh, caller here that is Morgan. Morgan, welcome to the show. How are you today? Doing good. How are you? I am fantastic. So I, I um, called in. I had a question for you. I grew up uh, with some proud parents who were both. Um, one was my mom was a teacher. My dad was a police officer. Both hardworking middle class people. And I try to strive to be just like them. But it seems like to me, just the way things are going. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that the middle class will cease to exist in the next, um, I'm going to throw 15 years out there? I, I, stay with me. Don't hang up. So don't, don't just, please don't disconnect Morgan there. I think that, yeah, he, yes, I, I would couch it in this way because it's a, it's a weird, you ask a very interesting question to me. I, I grew up uh, in what I would consider a, a middle class it, I don't think they thought of themselves as middle class. I think they came from – I came from two agrarian families. I think my, my grandfather actually worked at Jackson Training School and, and then at Oxford Orphanage and then to my other family. They, we would say dirt farmers down in Columbus County. They never thought of themselves in terms – they always thought they were probably lower class. My parents – you know, the father was an engineer, single-income family. and it, You could be middle class with a single income. Now it's, it's very different, and your point is that it's shrinking. And, and what you are saying is correct. For the first time, you know, uh, 50% of the U.S. population as of 2021 is considered middle class. That's the lowest it's been in nearly half a century. Uh, the, the middle class has been, you know, the, the engine that drives the nation. But it's not shrinking because of the things you would think. It, it appears from in, Investopedia and, and Forbes and Fortune 500, it's it's shrinking due to an increase in the population at the extreme bottom and the extreme top. So it's not so it's just so many more people on both extremes that the middle class is kind of diminished as a percentage of things. So having said that, uh, yes, I think the middle class will be here in 15, 20 years. I think it'll persist, but I think it'll be a smaller percentage. I think it may be, you know, 30, 35 percent or something like that. It'll be smaller. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a good take on it. I uh, never put that into perspective. It was more so on the idea of separation of wealth and kind of weeding out the people that do drive the uh, are the backbone of the country. They, they do. And it's interesting because they're, you know, the, the, the concept of being married is another thing that's played into that. Because if you're, you know, the single income, middle class means one thing. 
uh, if you're a couple, it's something else. And so as I was reading through some of the numbers there, uh, for a couple, it starts at 42000 up to 127000 That's a pretty big range to be considered middle class. For a single individual, from 30000 to 90000 a year is considered middle class. So a lot of people – now, this is what's interesting to me. It doesn't say whether that's absolute income because, you know, if you had a $90,000 salary, you ain't taking home ninety grand. You know, everything else that's got to come out of there. So uh, a family of three, 60000 to 180000 and so on. It goes on up from there. But I think it's changing uh, as we, you know, we just had what maybe seven to twelve million, depending on whose numbers you look at. Those are not going to be high income people. So you add that into the mix, and all of a sudden you've 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 got more people at the bottom. So that fifty percent, this middle class, goes down uh, an even lower number, probably forty eight, forty seven percent, as you see these numbers shift around over the next few years. So uh, it also changes what our concept of retirement looks like. And so I, th- I don't know what your age is, but you know anywhere from that 35 to 55, when they're looking ahead, the concept of retirement and how much is enough, I think one of the big things I think people have trouble reconciling, it's not their day-to-day expenditures, how much they want to spend on eating out, although inflation hits that, or how much they want to s- spend day-to-day. It's what's their, what is their medical encumbrance going to look like? So they've got to get that gap between 55 and when Medicare kicks in and what will that mean? So I think there's a lot of – I think you're asking – you opened kind of a Pandora's box of questions that need to be asked about what it means to be middle class and what it need, what it looks like in retirement. So, Morgan, I appreciate you calling in, man. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, man, it's, it's a blast. WBT's audience, erudite as always and informed and – and aware of things. And to give you some perspective more on what Morgan had said, if you looked at where we were from 1971 through 2021, so that's a, a 50-year perspective, so to speak. In 1971, 61% of the American public was considered middle class. Only 14% were considered in the upper echelons and 25% lower. So what we've seen since then, as you looked at 1981, it had gone to 59%, 91, 56, 2001, 54, 51, 52. Now it's down to 50%. But at the same time, the the wealth has gone from 14% of the U.S. population to 21%. So it's been a massive increase in wealth through that period of time for a lot of folks. And the lower income uh, folks now has gone from 25 to 29%. So, But I mean, how much can you go from zero? You know, zero's the bottom, and then you it, all you're doing is determining what number constitutes the upper end of lower income. And that number has moved up a little bit, so the number of people in that bracket have moved up. And when you bring 10, 12 million people into the country, uh, those people, when they're depending on how they're counted, that, that will contribute to that as well. So we've seen the upper incomes grow, and the middle class has shrunk. But it's still... You know, fifty percent of the nation. It's not. It's not. There's been no indication that it's going to crash phenomenally. So, if we were to take these projections ahead another fifty years, and it were to continue on the same trend, we would be somewhere around forty percent of the U.S. Uh, population being at the middle class. But, but again, that, as as anybody would say in the brokerage industry, past performance is not indicative of future results. It is just a trend line. It's kind of like the global the global climate change stuff, right? You look at the amount of CO2 that's been put in the atmosphere, and again, people think it's like 20%, 30% of the atmosphere. It's not. It's 0.007. It's, it's a small amount. It's why it works with trees and, and, and greenery. But the point is, if, if you looked at the, the line of it going up in the atmosphere and you looked at, at where the climate, you can't connect the temperatures directly to it. 
it's it, you can't pin it directly on that because it, it you know global temperatures will go down, they'll go up, they've gone up, but there's a lot more pieces to the pie, as several scientists will say. It's great debate to have, and where it'll you know we've been melting glaciers since the end of the last ice age. They haven't been growing. There's periods where they did, and uh, right now there's a great great trial. By the way, side note. There's a fantastic trial with Michael Mann, the creator of the great hockey stick. And that hockey stick got thrown under a bus in that trial the other day. I can't wait to see what happens because if Michael Mann loses that trial on the basis of fact, it's going to undermine a lot of the climate change. I think that's why the news isn't really covering the trial because some of the arguments have been devastating to that side of the equation. We'll see how it all pans out. Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Callender on the Pete Callender Show. He'll be back Monday, and uh, it has certainly been an honor, privilege, as always. I, I love working with this team, this, this amazingly professional team, a powerful voice in North Carolina, and for those in the northern tier of South Carolina that have the opportunity to listen, it's a, it's, it's a great way to stay informed about what the heck is going on. I'll give you an example of that. It was an, it was an oddity that that I noticed. I, in fact, I, I retweeted it. It was it was weird I, because if you're if you're in your 40s or 50s, you can remember the Gulf Wars when Norman 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 Schwarzkopf would come out and hold these press conferences, and the idiocy of mainstream media would routinely ask him, "Hey, where are you going to hit next? Where are you moving your tanks? Where are you moving your airplanes to? What's going to be?" And he would say, "We're not going to answer that. What what?" What military in the history of mankind would ever communicate what it's going to do to the enemy next? You just wouldn't do that, would you? you of course you wouldn't, because you know they would move move troops around, they shore up defenses. You wouldn't telegraph what you're going to do. The art of surprise is unique to military. I mean, it's not unique to military, but it's you just want to keep the element of surprise. So when the Biden administration came out and said, "Hey, by the way," as a response to three. U.S. service uh, personnel being killed in a drone strike that we kind of screwed up thinking it was one of our drones returning. We're going to strike in Iraq and Syria, and we're going to strike against targets that include Iranian personnel and facilities. And they told the media this. What lunacy, what moonbat crazy, detached from reality, squirrel-incensed, pathological servant would ever tell the enemy where we're going to do anything. Wouldn't even, don't even say Iraq. Or, we're we're going to respond at a time and place of our choosing. Thank you very much. Or you're going to say we're looking at our options while you've already got them planned and you're going to, you're just going to, you're going to nail them. But you don't get out and say, because if you are, if you're an Iranian personnel in Iraq or Syria, you've already booked that one-way ticket home, haven't you? You'd get out of the way. Oh, Oh, they're gonna, I'm, oh, that's right. I'm in Syria. They told me they're going to hit me in Syria. I need to get out of Syria. President Joe Biden said Tuesday he had made up his mind on how to respond to the drone strike. The U.S. blamed the drone attack on Iran-backed militants. So why wouldn't you do something to Iran? I mean, the Biden administration gave them tens of billions of dollars in uh, relieving, you know, uh, un- unlocking their 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 assets and letting them have access to billions while they're developing nuclear weapons and finding a way to target Israel while they're funding Hamas and Hezbollah and Yemenis Houthis. They're, while they're 
going after 80, 90, 110 attacks against U.S. personnel in various theaters of operation from Iraq down through Syria, Jordan, and onwards into the Red Sea. Oh, yeah, that's all okay. All at the behest of Iran while signaling to Iran, oh, by the way, yeah, we're going to hit some targets over here in in, in, in Iraq or Syria, but we're not going to touch anything inside the borders of Iran because then things would escalate and be out of control. It's unbelievable it's it's almost unfathomable that that's the way U.S. foreign policy is. So when all these people write about Donald Trump and their fear of who we'd be, I don't think that that administration would ever signal to our enemies where they are going to hit them and when they are going to hit them and how they are going to hit them. They're going to punish the Iran-backed militias. So we're going to go after them and we're going to go after them in these two theaters in, in Syria, and we're going to hit them in Iraq. And we're done. So just bizarre. Now, I do want to, it's, that's just an aside. You want to get in on the conversation, feel free to do so. 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110 here at News Talk 1110-993. Now, uh, the situation I, I mentioned earlier, and I do have a very devastating story on the as we get to the, the next half of this hour. But I do want to mention the Amazon. When people talk about investing and the role of what happens, you know, many, many years ago, people thought that Sears and Robux could never be re- replaced. Sears and Robux would never, that was the, the wish catalog. It gets kind of displaced by Kmart, which gets displaced by Walmart, which then gets displaced by Amazon. And you, you see these the evolution of shopping and, and it belongs to the people who are most innovative. It belongs to the people who are the most have the greatest deal of alacrity getting into a given market. And Amazon has done that. Amazon over the past twenty years, in the way it gave up, it gave up higher margins for long term gains. The way it reinvested infrastructure, it did a lot of things. The way it split its shares at key times, it did. I could go through it. It would be a little boring if you get into the weeds of the Amazon investment strategy. It's boring, but amazingly exciting if you like that kind of stuff. But had you had you invested $10,000 in Amazon stock in 2004, how much would it be worth? Now, I'll, let me give you a frame of reference. If you had stuck 10000 in the Standard & Poor's index, indices, if you'd stuck it in there, just a, a fund for the Standard & Poor, in the same period, you'd have $33,452. As of I think close yesterday, but ten thousand dollars in S and P, so it would have triple in value. Kind of ditto. I mean, if you'd done it in the stock market in the in the uh, Dow Jones or Nasdaq or one of those, it'd been about the same. You'd about tripled your money. I mean, it's a great investment over the long haul. It loses more. I mean, it gains more money. It loses over a given ten year period. But the Amazon purchase would be worth if you'd put ten thousand dollars in Amazon twenty years ago. It would now be worth. $645,262. Now that's an investment. Now you'd have to pay capital gains on that. And so the taxes would come out and stuff, but still that's a pretty sizable. So if you multiply, if you, not that you would have put a hundred grand in, but you'd have $6 million to put a hundred grand. In. Even after those extremely impressive long-term returns, many wall street analysts remain bullish on Amazon's outlook among the 47 analysts covering the stock. Amazon has 43 buy or strong buy ratings and just four hold or sell ratings. The average analyst price target for Amazon is $169, which is about 5% up from its January 29th closing over the next 12 months. So, Still a buy, but I, I just say, wow. And you knew people. I know that you know people that did. I had an uncle in Columbus County, of all places, farmer, and he spent a ton of money in Amazon back then. 
made a killing in it. He just let it sit there. He's farming. He felt like Amazon was going to go somewhere, and he invested heavily in it. So he's reaping the benefits of that. And and a lot of this, but again, I, I mentioned about an hour and a half ago in the first hour that when you're a part of a company or an organization of the country, you have to contribute to it to make it better. You don't just show up. As a citizen in this country, whenever I see those videos of people storming a store, you know, it's it's organized. It's a social media organizational strategy. We used to, we had flash mobs that showed up to do dance routines and to a song. And it was very interesting and highly entertaining. Now we have flash mobs that still up to rob a given store at a given time in a given place. And it, it's devastating. And the thing that always hurts the most about that is that's a generation of people that one, they have to live with what they did. And the sad reality of it is that most of the people that participate in those robberies, they don't have any kind of misgivings about doing what they did. Uh, as a friend once told me, if you incarcerate someone, you think you're going to re you cannot rehabilitate somebody who hasn't been habilitated to start with. Those are animals that are doing that kind of thing. And it's unfortunate that we have a lot of animals in society that think it's okay to deprive people of their lives, that deprive people of what they've earned, deprive people of things, and, and, and feel justified in doing so because either the media or some special interest group has told them that they're a victim. And once you have a victim mentality, you no longer are necessarily a participant in the country. You're not making things better necessarily. I'm not talking about true victims, domestic violence, things of that nature, uh, or cancer. I'm talking about when you are told that you are generationally a victim, you become someone who is resentful and full of hate, and you don't love your country, and you're not going to participate in making it better. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? Good afternoon, folks. Continuing on through our excursion into broadcast excellence here on WBT, News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, that is. 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110, the phone numbers. If you'd like to get in on the conversation, Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Callender, who's on the mend, so to speak. I shared his personal note earlier in the broadcast. He had a cyst that had to be taken care of rather abruptly, so to speak, in his back. Not Nothing life-threatening. He's fine, recovering, just Felt it would be better to to ease back into things, and we certainly wish him well here. And he will be, as I said, bright and early on Monday, ready for you and and to entertain and regale you with his exuberance and his outgoing demeanor. Now, 
I want to give you a little update on where if you want to monitor, if you would like to monitor where we are in the presidential outlook, and if you're obsessed with that, in North Carolina, we have, you know, our primaries coming up in March, and we have, I don't know, like a thousand people running for lieutenant governor on the Republican side, and and uh, there's a primary for president, and there's a primary for the governor's race, we and, and all of your local elections, county commissioner races all over the place, uh, some sheriff's races out there as well, a lot going on. If you'd like to keep track of things at the national level and look at it, if you like the entertainment value of polling, because I think it's largely uh, perspective-wise interesting. They, they if they're if they're broad enough, they have some degree of meaning. I've been impressed at the evolution of polling because when we went from landlines to cell phones and the way people communicated, I'm impressed that polling has found a way to have relevance through that transition. And so when you look at the polling, there's not a lot that has changed. If you look at the heads up national G- GOP between Trump and Haley, it's 72.7, 18.7. That means he's got a, you know this insane lead, but that's a national poll. So if you look at those national polls, they're, they're largely irrelevant because you have to go state by state to look at relevancy. So if you look at South Carolina, one of the complaints was that there hadn't been any recent polling in South Carolina. Well, there has now, as of the end of January, there have been two, and Trump still holds a substantial lead, almost uh, double what Nikki. It's 53.7 to 26.7. A lot of undecideds out there. It depends on how they'll break or if they show up. And then uh, the national Democrat side, Joe Biden's. It's, what's interesting is Joe Biden's number is the same as Trump. So nationally, Trump has a 72.7% number, and Joe Biden has a 72.2% number amongst Democrats. So when you look at the heads up, that's what people are looking at because the odds on favorite is for Trump to win his primary, legal cases notwithstanding. Nationally, Trump heads up with Biden 45 to 44, which is Trump plus 1.8. If you look at a five-way race, if you include you know West and Stein and Biden and Kennedy, you include everybody, then Trump is up by just shy of five points, plus 4.9. And that's including the most recent polling. Now, people say, well, you have to look at the states, because state by state, how would Trump do? Because nationally, it doesn't really matter. It's an electoral college. So Trump in the state of Georgia, which has not been a state that he did well in last time, and in fact, lost, you know, I know some people don't believe that, but uh, uh, history will record that he did. Trump is ahead of Biden by 48.7 to 41.5. That's a 7.2% advantage. Wisconsin, which has been terrible for Republicans, Trump actually holds a very slight lead there. Arizona, Trump is up by almost five. It's a state also that, that, that he lost. Nevada, Trump holds a, a seven-point lead. And Michigan, he holds a five-point lead. In Pennsylvania, Biden is up by less than a half of a point. So these are all number. Again, they're meaningless numbers because November is unfathomably a long way away. And there's any number of, of factors that could happen nationally, internationally, locally, health-wise, legally. There's so many different factors that this is more entertainment than anything else. But it gives you a snapshot of the problems that Democrats are wrestling with. And they are. Make no mistake, they are. Uh, uh, Biden's approval rating is still at 41%. The right direction, wrong direction, 66% of the American public still thinks that this administration is pushing us in the wrong direction. So it is not, it is not, uh, It's a, if they were in a sailboat, they'd be heading into the wind. 
And and that's the problem. Well, they like wind energies. They should like a find a way to, to hit into the wind, but it's problematic for them. So the the averages right now, they they have the the real clear politics also has what they call betting averages. I mean, if you were betting, uh, if you were betting Trump would be a forty two point eight to thirty two point eight percent favorite right now uh, over over Biden. So that's for what it's worth. So if you were betting, if you were laying odds, if you were into that, so that's where it would be. So the the Trump situation. Team Trump's got to be happy about that. Uh, the the Magadonians, as they would call them, are very, very happy about that. Biden is searching for the view, the vision that he wants to project right now. He's trying to present himself as the anti-Trump. He can't run on immigration. He's trying to find ways to run on the economy. He has some good economic numbers today with the jobs report. He's He's got internationally, he's got some problems, obviously, the Middle East, the Ukrainian situation, uh, the Taiwan situation. So many things internationally not in Biden's favor. So we'll see how that all plays out. Nonetheless, I don't I don't know what issues they're there. I guess they're hoping the economy will stabilize in some way and be good for them. But I don't see that happening. So I don't know where the Democrats are going to go to try to take over the House and, and hold the Senate. They've got some the uphill battles. Certainly, West Virginia is probably going to flip. They've got a couple states they've got to be concerned about. Now, having said that, when we get into this next segment, I do want to. It, it's kind of a more of a sciency area. It's always been my my inclination to close shows on the science side or something of human interest, and this one is, and it, it's terrifying, a little bit terrifying, because if you're used to dealing with pathogens and you've seen that, there are some types of illnesses that are more terrifying than others. Obviously, bacteria, viral things of this day we're used to, but there's something taking place amongst the deer population, and I've witnessed it firsthand on a farm I manage up in the central part of the state. It's an absolutely horrible, horrible situation, and we can only hope that that kind of illness does not jump to humans. I'll tell you more about that on the other side of the break, Uh, so do stay tuned. I'm not trying to be a very Stephen King way of looking at things, but it's good to be aware, right? Information is always good. Guys are getting a little nervous because they know Valentine's Day is coming. Oh, if you didn't know, it's coming up, just FYI. So wives, girlfriend, and other, you may want to consider that. Now, I I said that because the next story isn't a very pleasant one. And to say this, it's a very little Stephen King. Now, I'm hopefully optimistic about it. I hope this never comes to pass. But, you know, it's, it's worth knowing because there's, look, Nature is out to get you. I appreciate all the tree huggers out there, but you know, there's a lot of trees you can hug that can kill you. And that's true. There's a lot of things in nature that are not good for you from spiders and on up. Now, I love nature, but I also have a healthy respect for it. When I'm out there, I know that most things out there, you know, are are always eyeing me to determine if I'm food or a threat. And if I'm a threat, I need to be dispatched. And so the tiniest of things can take care of that. Now, imagine... The, uh, the kind of ultimate doomsday disease. And I'm going to kind of paint the picture for you, not to bring you down on a Friday, but to make you aware. It could spread very quickly, but the progression of the illness would be kind of slow and subtle. There's no immunity. There's no treatment. There's no vaccine that'll slow it down. The disease would eventually find just about every single one of us. It would spread via bodily fluids in time. It would kill everyone it infected. Even our food and drink wouldn't be safe because the infectious agent would be hardy enough to survive disinfectants. It also survives the heat of cooking. It would be pervasive enough to infest our livestock, our crops. Imagine if consuming a plant could cause a fatal, untreatable neurodegenerative disease. Any food grown within North America would be potentially deadly to humans. 
That nightmare Ill illness, it does not exist. Let me be very clear. does not exist for humans, but there is an example of it out there. And you can look. It's called chronic wasting disease. Now, I can remember seeing this hit deer at uh, our farm in, in Lee County. And I remember it was, a, it was a February day. It was quite cool, but I saw three dead deer in the middle of the field when I had it checked out. They weren't shot. They weren't trapped. They, weren't in, they had that killed, just wiped them out wiped out probably 2025 in the area. It's highly lethal, highly contagious, neurodegenerative. It's devastating North America's deer, elk, and other cervids. In the half century since it was discovered in a captive deer colony in Colorado, it has worked its way into more than 30 U.S. states, four Canadian provinces, as well as South Korea, several countries in Europe. In some captive herds, the disease has been detected in more than 90% of those populations. In the wild, uh, we've seen areas now where more than 50% of the bucks are infected, and it kills indiscriminately, gnawing away at a deer's brain until the tissue is just riddled with holes, and it is out of control. What makes it so formidable is the cause. The infectious, the infectious misfolded proteins called prions. Now, in case that word is somewhere in your brain that you've heard the word prion before, remember the mad cow disease that, that was so popular years and years ago, and they killed all the populations. And remember, you couldn't go to Stonehenge in England because it was in the, in the ground and stuff like that. Uh, it is, in many ways, the most difficult disease to deal with because of those prions. Uh, so when you look at that, and it, it could, could it spill into other species? Among the world's known infectious agents, prions are an anomaly. They're more like, and don't get this the wrong way, and I'm not trying to be trendy, it's more like zombies than living entities. Unlike most microbes, which are your viruses, your bacteria, your parasites, your fungi, prions are just improperly folded proteins. They don't have any genetic material. They're unable to build more of themselves or cleave themselves into and divide. So when they do is they just find other protein and then they share that way of doing things, and they convert that protein into a folded protein, the same shape they have. That's why you can't defend against it, because your immune system doesn't pick up on it. It's an entirely new paradigm of infectious diseases. It's part of your own body that's turning against you. And so we have put them in check in other places. Uh, there was a disease called Kuru, once common in the highlands of New Guinea, transmitted through local rituals of cannibalism. So luckily, we don't have to deal with that. And also, usually we cull infected animals. But meanwhile, here's the issue is, think about this. Uh, and this is going to sound terrible because there's a lot of people out there that hunt deer, got nothing against it. This is not an anti-hunting thing. But most people who have consumed deer meat have consumed those prions, and those prions didn't get destroyed by the cooking process. Whereas most other prion diseases primarily keep quarters in the central nervous system, it gets in pretty much every part of the body. A deer then pass on the molecules often through direct contact. They'll shed prions in their saliva, urine, uh, reproductive fluids, antler velvet before they start to show symptoms. And it just takes a little bit. It goes a long way. And it can even pass it on to babies in utero. And you can't boil it away. You can put temperatures up to 275. It can survive 60 to 90 minutes under extreme pressure to get rid of it. Infected deer are also frustratingly difficult to detect. The disease typically takes years to fully manifest while it infiltrates the entire body of the deer. They drift away from the herd, they start eating at weird times, and then they just kind of drool and die. Uh, it's, it's a horrible thing. But what they have, uh, CBD, CWD has proved capable of infecting rodents, sheep, goats, cattle, raccoons, ferrets, and primates. But so far, 
Jumps into non-servant species don't seem to be happening in the wild, even though people eat an estimated 10,000 COVID-wasting disease-infected deer every year. Not a single human case has been documented. When I say CWP, it's not just it's elk, deer, it's all those uh, servants. Lab experiments indicate that human proteins, at least when expressed by mice, could be susceptible to it, but right now not. So the beautiful thing about this is we don't have to worry about this now, but we need to be very, very careful about it. Vaccines for wildlife, they're trying to figure out a way, but there aren't any vaccines for this stuff. Should any CWV vaccines come to market, though, they will almost certainly be the first prion vaccines in the experimental stage. That could be a boon for more than just deer. Another prion disease may spill from one species to others. Others may arise spontaneously. This one is not and may never be the prion disease that affects us, but it is for now the most urgent. And what I mean by that is those populations of deer, this thing is 100% fatal. There is no recovery. You don't kind of just get over it. You get it. It takes time. It gets not you humans, but the deer. So once it gets in a deer population, they're done. They're toast. It's over. The beauty of this, again, for us, not there yet. But it's it's kind of an example that in nature, it's always good to be aware. And nature isn't necessarily your friend. So let's hope we study. Our scientists stay ahead of things. And hopefully our scientific organizations can repair the damage they did to themselves during COVID as they deal with the servants. How's that for a scientific lesson at the end of a beautiful day? I have been Chad Adams, your happy, humble, and emphatically just joyous host today. Pete Counter will be back at the microphone Monday, and, and we are excited that he's going to be back as well. And by the way, as you get toward March, do try to get informed about the candidates running for office because you have I don't even know. I, I, I've got my favorites in some of these elections. I know many of the folks running. I don't want to get into that, but I do know that it's a, a lot of choices. There's a lot at stake. And the governor, it's not just the governor's race. It's the lieutenant governor's race. There's a highly contested race for the superintendent of public instruction as Catherine Truitt's defending her seat against Michelle Morrow. That's going to be one to watch. That could go either way. I think it's Truitt's to lose at this point, but it could be fascinating and, and certainly all of the seats for the House and Senate, we're going to have a new Speaker of the House in North Carolina as Tim Moore tries to get a congressional seat in a map that he helped to draw. So there's a, a lot going on there as well. And as you look to the governor's race, certainly Josh Stein, there is actually a Democrat primary between Josh Stein and uh, Mike Morgan, who resigned from the Supreme Court to run. That one's kind of a fait accompli, though. It's not going to go anywhere, and Josh Stein's going to walk that. That's why if you look at what Josh Stein is running, right now the two, the person that Josh Stein is running against 100% is Mark Robinson. So people will be keeping an eye on that race. And as always, stay tuned to WBT to find out what the heck's going on in the world. Chad Adams signing off for now. Have a great weekend. <laughs>